We live in the age of streaming. We all use Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, and so nobody, nobody uses DVD players much anymore, but my uh, high school and college days were the height of DVDs, and so you would buy your favorite movies or seasons of your favorite show, and the studios would occasionally do a special edition of a movie or a season of a show, and to get you to buy it, it, it had all these extra features. And so one of the extra features was a director's commentary. And so think of your, your favorite movie, your favorite show, you've seen this movie 50 times, but now you can have access to the director's commentary. And so you can learn more about that movie. You can watch that movie and as the movie's playing, the director is speaking in the background, filling you in on why they did this, what, what to see here all of those little extra details for, for you to kind of geek out on with your favorite movie. And that's what I'd like us to do this morning with Genesis 3. So Gen Genesis 3 is a very familiar story. It's, it's not only one of the most famous stories in Scripture, it's one of the most famous stories. In, in all of human history, Genesis 3 is right near the top of stories that Everybody knows. Everybody has heard. You've seen this movie 50 times. You know what happens. You know Genesis 3, the serpent comes into the garden, deceives Eve. Eve takes the fruit and eats and gives it to her husband, and he eats. And so sin enters the world. God finds out about Adam and Eve's sin, punishes their sin, and then kicks them out of the garden. You know the story of Genesis 3. And, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through the story and do a little bit of a director's commentary. We're going to talk about the different elements at play. We're going, to, we're going to look at these characters. We're going to look at the little details in the story that you maybe haven't seen before to give us better context and a better understanding of what's happening. So let, let's look together at the story. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, just that first half of verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The first character introduced in this scene is the serpent. And here, Moses, the author of Genesis, he's introducing not only the bad guy in this specific story, but we're going to see this is the bad guy. This is the chief antagonist through all of Scripture and through all of redemptive history. And uh, Moses doesn't give us much detail about this serpent. He doesn't tell us how the serpent became evil or, or what, what's going on there. We're going to have to learn that later in Scripture. But he gives us two details about the serpent. First, he says that the serpent was crafty. And second, that he was a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the fact that the serpent is a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Moses is telling us God made the serpent. The serpent is not introduced as this character who exists outside of God's creation, who, is, who, has his, who owes his existence to something other than God. And that's really important because think, if Satan, if Satan was not made by God, that would imply that, that Satan is independent of God and that he might be as powerful or even maybe more powerful than God. The, the, there would be this cosmic battle 
between these two beings. And Moses says, no, no, no. Satan, the serpent, was created just like the rest of us. He does not have independence from, he does not exist outside of God's power and outside of God's control. So whatever is true about the serpent, he exists under the authority of God. And that's, that's a great uh, comfort to us as the, as the story moves forward. So he's a beast of the field, just like every other animal. And Moses also says that he's crafty. He's the most crafty of the beasts of the field. So Moses is telling us, listen, this serpent, he has a forked tongue. And so don't take anything that he says at face value. Be careful when he begins to speak because he's deceitful. And later in Scripture, in, in Revelation, John describes Satan. When, when, the, when the more full understanding of Satan emerges through Scripture, John summarizes Satan in Revelation 12, verse 9. He calls him that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that's, where we, that's who we know this is for, for us as we've read all of Scripture. But, but here, it's just the first introduction of this character. So he's, a, he's created by God, just like all the rest of creation, but he's crafty. And so now this serpent has slithered into the garden and in the rest of verse 1 through verse 5, we see that the serpent has a conversation with Eve. And we're already listening to the nature of that conversation. We're, we're wary. And the serpent says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so right away, the serpent speaks to the woman. And the first thing we see here is that the serpent is inverting the created order. God has created Adam, the man, and he's given Adam dominion over the earth. He, he calls Adam to work and to keep the earth. And we saw a couple weeks ago in Genesis 2 that God gave Adam a helper. God gave Adam a woman made from the rib of Adam, so this, this woman that comes from this man, to, to show how closely related they are, how together they are meant to be. And this woman is meant to come alongside the man as a helper. Adam in the lead and his wife right next to him as his helper. So you're supposed to have the man leading, the woman following and, and helping and coming alongside, and then they're exercising dominion over creation. And the serpent flips that on its head. Here you have a creature speaking to the woman, not, not to the man, and then the woman is going to go to the man. So, so Satan, right away, he's trying to upend God's design. So he goes to the woman, and the way that the serpent goes after Eve is by calling into question God's word. He says, did God actually say? Now think about Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, God's word has been the star. God's word has been front and center through these two chapters. God speaks and something happens. God, God's word is revealed as powerful. Let there be light, light immediately. Let us make man and woman in our image. Happens, right? Everything God says 
comes to pass. And everything God says happens and is good. God steps back from his creation and he says, this is good. This is very good. So God's word is powerful, it is trustworthy, and it is good. That's, that's the testimony of Genesis 1 and 2. And now you have Satan, the serpent, coming in and saying, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which, of course, God didn't say that. God gave them access to all the trees in the garden except for one. And so Satan, the serpent, is calling into question, what, what did God say and, and how valuable is God's word? So, so he attacks God's word and there's a progression to that attack. He begins with this subtle questioning to draw Eve in. Did God actually say, I want to dialogue with you, Eve. Let's have a conversation, right? Did God actually say, we shall not eat, you shall not eat of any tree? And, the, and Eve is drawn in. Eve takes the bait. She steps into a conversation with the serpent and she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she challenges the serpent. No, 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 you're wrong, serpent. We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So it's just this one tree, serpent. That's the only tree that's off limits to us. And then she says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. She's already departing from God's word. She's adding to God's word, confusing God's word. God only told Adam, you shall not eat of the tree. Didn't say anything about touching. So she's, she's playing fast and loose with God's words. The serpent already has her where he wants her. Then the serpent moves from subtle questioning to a direct challenge. Verse four. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Come on, Eve. Are you serious? Do you, do you really think that one bite of the fruit's gonna kill you? Are you, are you sure you can trust God's word? Are you sure he's telling you the truth? So he, he moves from subtle questioning to direct challenge, and then he moves to an alternate word. Will you surely die? Don't listen to God's word. I have a new word for you. I have new information. I have something to say that's different from what God says, and you should listen to me. He says, God knows, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen, Eve, God's been holding, holding back from you. You could have more. You could become God's equal. If you eat the fruit, you will become like God. You could become God's equal. And All you have to do is eat the fruit. You'll have knowledge. I have secret knowledge for you that God's withholding from you. You can't trust God. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He doesn't want you to be happy. Listen to me. You've been listening to God's word. Now listen to my word. So that's the exchange that the serpent and Eve have. And then you get to verse 6. And we see Eve's fatal step, Eve's fatal false dichotomy. Verse six, when the woman saw 
Remember, Satan has been promising, your eyes will be opened. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Look at how the serpent has deceived Eve and look at what he has appealed to. He's not only appealing to her mind. He's appealing to her heart and her stomach. He's appealing to her desires. He's calling her to joy, to happiness. The woman saw, what did she see? That the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. This is joy language, happiness language. Eve comes to a spot where she says, if I eat the fruit, I'll be happy. My life will be better. I'll, I'll, I'll have more satisfaction if I disobey God. And so what, what Eve has done is she has separated joy and duty, or duty, duty and delight. She, in her mind, the, the snake has deceived her to believe that I can either be happy or obedient. I can't be both. Either I obey God and it's drudgery and it's boring and God holds back from me, or I eat the fruit and I get to be happy. That's Satan's biggest lie. That is what we are most prone to believe. That God does not have my best interests at heart and that if I really want to be happy, I have to find my happiness apart from God. I have to find my happiness by becoming free of God because obedience to God is a chain that's holding me back and I want to go over here where happiness is. The tree, it looks it, the tree is tasty. The fruit from the tree is tasty and it's beautiful and it'll make me wise. My heart's desire will be fulfilled. A heart's desire that didn't even exist five minutes ago. That's where sin always attacks us. Right? We, we never wake up and think, I'm gonna disobey God today just, for the, just because. Every time we go after sin, we are buying the lie that this sin will make me happier. This sin will satisfy me. This sin will give me the comfort that I'm craving. God won't. God is too hard. He's too harsh. He's too, uh, he's too negative. He's too withholding. And so Eve buys that lie. She believes that my happiness will come from disobedience. I can either have obedience or joy, and I want joy. And just think about what has happened again in Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, Adam and Eve wouldn't even exist apart from God. God created them, and God gave them a world gave them a garden, gave them this perfect environment, paradise, perfect paradise with ample provision. Every tree in the garden 
is yours. All the food you could ever want. All the space you could ever want. Relationship with each other. Satisfying relationship with each other. And fellowship with me for eternity. Just stay away from that tree. And Adam and Eve don't believe it. They go after disobedience. They think, God's not enough for me. I need more than God. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith, this old confession of faith, says that the chief end of man, the purpose of life, the purpose of humanity, our, our number one job is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What, was, what were humans created for? We were created to glorify God, worship God, give praise to God, give honor to God, show how good God is, and we were created to enjoy God forever. And then John Piper comes in about 30 years ago. He's the, he was the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is the church that helped plant this church. And he comes in and he says, those two are the same. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever is actually more fully stated, more, more rightly stated by we exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The best way, the way that God designed us is to give him glory and honor, to depend on him and obey him by enjoying him, by believing that he is the best for us, that there is no greater joy, there's no greater satisfaction than to be in God's presence with God. And you, you see that a few verses later, verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The implication is this is what the pattern has been. They're living in paradise with God. God has been in their presence. They've been able to approach him and be in fellowship with him, this soul-satisfying relationship with God is what they've been experiencing in the garden. What makes paradise paradise is God's presence. So we, we exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And Satan comes in and he says, glorifying God is drudgery. It's slavery, enjoying the good things in life, sex, drugs, rock and roll, enjoying the good things in life, that's where you'll find pleasure. And, and if you really want to find pleasure, you have to go away from God. Freedom and happiness come from being free of God and his demands. And scripture, scripture's testimony is no, duty and delight are the same. Our greatest joy will be found in obedience to God because God will not withhold from us. No good thing does he withhold from those who love him. But Adam and Eve, they don't see that. They're deceived. They go after this other delight. And it, it struck me this week, we call it the forbidden fruit and that's not wrong, but, but that implies that God has withheld something good, right? It, here's this fruit, it's really good, but I forbid you from touching it. it. It's forbidden because it's poisonous. 
Don't eat that fruit, because the day that you eat it, you will die. It's like calling Drano the forbidden beverage, right? You don't, if you tell your kids you can't drink Drano, you're not withholding from them, you're, you're keeping them safe. It's the poisonous fruit, and it's forbidden because it's poisonous. But we think, if I could just have a bite, I'll be happy. So we've seen the serpent, and we've seen the woman, and now we finally see the man. Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman has been mentioned four times in in these few verses before the man is finally mentioned. The narrator has had us asking, where is Adam? Where's Adam in this picture? You have the serpent talking to the woman, where's Adam? And now he zooms out, and he doesn't have to zoom out very far because it turns out Adam's been standing there the whole time. She took some and gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam has been standing right next to his wife, And we're meant to see this is a massive failure on Adam's part. This is a massive abdication of his role. This is dereliction of duty on Adam's part. Adam was charged to work and keep the garden, to be a gardener and a guardian. And now a dangerous creature has slithered into the garden and is threatening his wife, and he's just standing there doing nothing This is not a salesman at the front door. This is a burglar breaking in the back window. Right? If somebody comes and knocks on the front door, it's fine for the husband to say, hey, can you go get the door, honey? But if it's the middle of the night and a door and a window's broken, you don't say, hey, can you go check on that? No, right? The the husband ought to step in front of his wife. What should have happened in this passage It should say, the serpent said to the woman, and then the next thing should have been, and the man stepped between the serpent and his wife and cut off the serpent's head. That's how the passage ought to have gone. That was Adam's role in this this story, and he just stood there. And now, two things are true at the same time in this passage. Eve should not have entertained the serpent's poisonous conversation. She bears responsibility for this. She should not have done that. She should not have spoken with the serpent. She should not have talked about God's word in the way that she talked about it. She should not have been drawn in. That's true. And it's also true that Adam shouldn't have let it happen. Both are true at the same time. And so Adam doesn't do that. Adam does the opposite. He allows the serpent to deceive his wife. He allows his wife to step into rebellion and disobedience. He stands there and watches her take a bite. And then he himself joins her in that rebellion and disobedience. So that's the the sin, verses 1 through 6. And now look at the consequences. Look at the immediate effects. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew. Just like Satan said. He's been telling the truth. 
Verse five, God knows that when you eat of it, verse five, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Your eyes will be opened and you will know. Verse seven, the eyes of both were opened and they knew. And what did they know? That they're naked. They're vulnerable. They're covered in shame now. They, they knew that they were naked at the end of chapter 2, but they were naked and unashamed because they had no sin to cover up. But now, suddenly, their hands are covered in blood. Now, they, are, they have guilt. So they get knowledge, their eyes are open, but they, what they see is not what they thought they would see. They don't like what they see. They get more than they bargained for. So the eyes of both were open, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That, that sounds pathetic because it is. They see that they're naked. What's their solution for their nakedness? Underwear made of leaves. It doesn't work, right? All of our attempts at self-righteousness in scripture and in history, are equivalent to sewing leaf underwear. It doesn't work. It doesn't cover us up. It doesn't last. It's not comfortable. It, it's, it's impossible, right? The best we can do to cover up our shame is worthless. Oh no, we're exposed. This is the best we can do to cover up. It just doesn't work. So Adam and Eve immediately see we're in trouble. This is bad news. And then, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, this is what has been happening. They've been in relationship with God. God has come down to be with them. This is meant to be their greatest joy, fellowship with God. And now it becomes their worst nightmare. God is here. And how do, they, how do they respond to God's presence? They hide from him. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They were created by God to enjoy fellowship with him, and now they're terrified that if he sees them in their sin, they will be destroyed. Because remember, on the day that you eat the fruit you will surely die. They ate the fruit. Now what can they expect from God but judgment? They are no longer God's friends or God's children, but they are now God's enemies. They are traitors. At the end of the chapter, we'll see that God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his presence, but we see here that their relationship with God is already severed. Their sin has created a separation. That's Isaiah 59, 2. Your sin has caused a separation between you and God. Even before God kicks them out of the garden, they want to get away from God. They want to hide from him. God comes into the garden, they hide from God, and again, that doesn't go well like you would expect. You can't hide from God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The serpent has taken that created order and flipped it upside down. 
creature, woman, man, God comes into the garden and he flips it back over. Who does he go to first to find out what has happened? He goes to the man. He goes to Adam and he says, where are you? So he knows where Adam is. Adam comes out. Verse 10, he said, he said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I know I've sinned. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Right, this is God, it's not that God doesn't know what has happened. He wants to see what Adam thinks has happened. He asks Adam, what happened? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree? Now, Adam's response should be, yes. Full stop, right? Have you done this? Yes. But instead, you see, verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So Adam throws Eve, then God, under the bus. Have you eaten the fruit of the tree? The woman. It's my wife's fault. And you're the one that gave her to me. So it's really your fault, God. Right? My, my horizontal relationships, my relationships with other people, they're why I sin. And really, my vertical relationship, it's your fault that I sin, God. So he shifts blame. He, he doesn't want to take responsibility for what has happened. And so God turns to the woman. Says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman, now she follows her husband's lead and she blames the serpent, right? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Don't blame me. It's the snake's fault. Adam and Eve have no interest in, in taking responsibility. There's no remorse or repentance. There's only blame shifting. That's what we often do with our sin. Adam says it's Eve's fault and it's God's fault. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. And now, the reasons that Adam and Eve give are not untrue. Eve really did give the fruit to Adam. The serpent really did deceive Eve. But that's not the relevant reason. Those aren't the relevant factors in what has happened. Adam willingly took the fruit and ate. Eve willingly listened to the serpent and took the fruit and ate. Adam is responsible for Adam's sin. Eve is responsible for Eve's sin. But instead, they seek to blame others and God. Now that the sin is out in the open, God, is, God has exposed what they have done, and God turns to the consequences. We see the punishment for sin in, in verses 14 through 19. The Lord God says to the serpent, so now he, he goes back to the order that the serpent introduced. First addresses the serpent, then the woman, then the man. And he curses the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent is more crafty than all the beasts of the field, and now God says he is more cursed 
than all the beasts of the field. So his craftiness is leading to his cursedness. And the fact that snakes slither on their belly is a symbol of their pathetic state under the curse of God. So you're cursed, snake, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Curses the snake, and then he says to the woman, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So Eve was made in chapter 2 to be the helper, to, to serve alongside Adam, to, to partner with Adam in this spreading God's glory, and to be fruitful and multiply with Adam, right? And as the, as the woman, she is the one who will bring forth children. And God says to her, you will still fulfill those roles, but now they're going to be marked by pain and difficulty, you will still have children, but the, the process of conceiving and carrying and birthing a child will be filled with pain and anxiety and danger. And you will still live in relationship with men and in relationship with your husband, but it's going to be fraught. It's going to be difficult. Getting the balance right in the relationship between men and women is now going to be really, really hard. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what's going to happen here is that the, the dance between men and women that's meant to be this beautiful partnership, now both partners have two left feet and they're going to step on each other's toes all the time. Uh, Andrew Peterson, the, the songwriter, he has a song about marriage and he calls it dancing in a minefield. And I, I love that image. He, he says that when you get married to someone, you're dancing in a minefield and you're sailing in a storm. Dancing is beautiful, sailing is glorious, but they're going to be difficult because of sin. Men are going to be prone to either abdicate their responsibility, just check out, or press in on their responsibility in an unhealthy way. Abuse and manipulate and, and oppress women. It's going to be hard for men to get that balance right. And women, in the same way, it's going to be, they're going to be either uh, too submissive, where it's, it's, they're going to desire to just be controlled, or they're going to become manipulative. It's going to be hard to get that balance right for both because of their sin. They're going to con- we're going to continue doing it, but now it's, it's difficult because of the, the consequences of our sin. And w- when we hear about, for example, uh, like radical feminism, radical feminism is this idea that uh, women have been oppressed by men and so they need to just get away from any male leadership and, and any control of men. And, and women need to come into positions of power. And, and we don't agree with that diagnosis and we don't agree with the solutions of radical feminism, but, but we should listen. We should slow down and be willing to acknowledge where that call is coming from. It's a cry of pain. 
That's that's women crying out, this hurts. The dynamic between men and women has been painful and destructive. I have scars. We shouldn't just dismiss that. We, as, as Christians, we should be willing to say, it is hard. It is broken. It is messy. But there is a better way. There is an original design that we can still pursue. And then God turns to Adam and says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, eaten the fruit of the tree... Cursed is the ground because of you. So you're a gardener and a guardian. You're going to continue to be a gardener, but now the ground is full of thistles and thorns. And and you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. And you're going to return to the ground that I took you out of. It's the consequence for Adam and Eve. Work will become difficult. You're You're under the consequences of your sin. So now we get to the end of the chapter and where, where are Adam and Eve left? What, what, what happens at the end of the chapter? Verses 20 through 24, really briefly. Adam and Eve get to the end of chapter three. They are outside the garden, but they're clothed and they're alive. So there are three notes of grace in, in Genesis three. First, in, when God speaks to the serpent, the woman and the man, notice that he curses the serpent and he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. What we see is that death will not be immediate or the final word. Adam, you will return to the dust, but not today. You will die because of your sin, but not today. And it's not going to be the final word. The final word for the snake is death. There is no redemption for the serpent. But for Adam and Eve, there will be redemption. Secondly, that passage uh, in verse 15, when he's talking to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So this is referred to as the first gospel. This is the first note that God is going to send a redeemer. There will be a man born of the woman, an offspring of a woman, and that offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bite the man, but the man will crush his head. And then finally, Verse 20, excuse me, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They've tried to cover themselves with leaves. God gives them clothing. And the clothing is made from the skin of an animal. How do you get the clothing from a, how do you get skin from an animal? You kill the animal. This is the first note of the sacrificial system. God kills an animal so that Adam and Eve can be clothed so that their shame can be covered. And then we get to Galatians chapter 4, and Paul says that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Already on this darkest day in humanity, this is humanity at our worst 
And already here on this worst day, God gives grace. God gives hope. God gives a trajectory out of this pit of destruction. The final word for humanity will not be condemnation, but redemption. God will send a man born of a woman, his own son, and he will send him to be a sacrifice. We will one day be clothed in Christ's righteousness. All of our sin and our shame will be put on Jesus and his garments of righteousness will be put on us so that we have no need to be ashamed, so that we have no need to hide from God, so that we can come back into the, into the garden, back into God's presence, walk with God again, find our true, lasting, eternal joy with God so that we can obey him, not out of duty, but out of delight. Let's pray. Father, we have sinned against you. We have made little of your word. We have rejected your word, minimized your word, distorted your word. We have bought the lie that happiness comes apart from you, that obedience to you is boring and difficult and because you are withholding from us. And because of that, we're covered in shame. But you have sent your son You have given us a sacrifice. You have covered our shame with the blood of Jesus, washed it away, and now we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, and we can come back into your presence without shame and without fear. Help us to run to Christ. Amen. So...